Let's open up now together to the book of Romans, chapter 5. We are continuing on. We've been in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 for a few weeks now. We will finish that section up this morning. Well, let's just read together now from Romans chapter 5, again starting in verse 1. We'll read the first 11 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you, Lord, for this precious treasure that you have given to us. Through it, Lord, by your Spirit's working, We hear the voice of our God. Through it, you are speaking clearly and perfectly to us. And I pray, Lord, that that your word would accomplish its good work by your spirit this morning. Lord, that our eyes would be opened, that our ears would be opened, that our hearts would be transformed. Lord, even as for, for so many of us, you have brought us from death into life, from slavery into freedom. We pray, God, that you would accomplish your supernatural good work this morning. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word. Let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the last three Sundays, we've been in this same passage, just slowly working through it, looking at the benefits that accompany justification by faith. Those who have been justified by faith, counted righteous by God, with Christ's own righteous status, have, first we saw, peace with God. We're no longer his enemies. The the, the war is over. We are now fully accepted, beloved children of God. Second, we have access to God, access to permanent standing in his grace. We're we're presented in Christ faultless before the throne of God. God, we we are in Christ, we are robed in his righteousness, and our standing in heaven is just as secure as his is. Paul has shown us how, how, how all of this produces hope in God then for the Christian. If we know these things, then even in the, the worst of circumstances, even in the midst of, of intense suffering, we're still filled with hope because we know that 
Those whom he has justified, he will surely glorify. We, we know that God is at work even in the worst of circumstances for our eternal good, and that produces hope in us. Now we come to a fourth product, a fourth blessing of justification by faith alone. That'll take us through the end of these 11 verses. Justification by faith produces reconciliation with God. So last week we saw in verse 5, Paul said that the Holy Spirit of God pours his love into our hearts. That's the first mention of love in the book of Romans. And so now Paul is going to tell us much more about this love. He's going to expand much more on what this love looks like. This is a love that came to us, Paul's going to tell us, at our very worst when we were least deserving of such love. And the, the main clause here in verse 6 that sort of frames all that Paul's going to say here is this, Christ died for the ungodly. It, it, this love that, that Paul says the Holy Spirit has poured into our hearts, the main proof of this love is the death of Christ. And it is a shocking love. It is a unique love. It is a costly love. And don't miss the language here. As we've seen numerous times as Paul has begun to unfold for us the only way that a man or a woman could be saved, he says Christ died for the ungodly. That's the language of substitution. You should have died. I should have died for our sins. And yet Christ laid his life down for his people, for us. He died in the place of the ungodly. He died in the place of the totally unrighteous sinners that we saw in the first couple chapters of the book of Romans. And so this statement sounds a lot like something we saw in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says, To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. He's the one who justifies the ungodly. God is the one who, who declares the ungodly to be righteous by faith. He, he doesn't declare the one who is working really hard to reform himself to be righteous by faith. He doesn't declare the one who is, he, yes, I admit, not been perfect, but I'm reinventing myself. He doesn't declare that person righteous by faith. It's not the one who is basically a good person that is declared righteous by faith. God saves irreverent, unrighteous, unworthy sinners, and it's the only category of people he saves because, by the way, it's the only category of people that there is. So likewise now in chapter 5, verse 6, he says, Christ died for the ungodly. There's nothing about you that would make you worthy of that. He wasn't moved by how great you were. He wasn't impressed by you. You hadn't done anything to make him your debtor. He wasn't responding to some potential you have that he could see in you and no one else could. No, he died for the ungodly. What does verse six say? For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now remember what we've seen as we have gone through the book of Romans, how Paul has gone to great lengths in the early chapters of this book to show us the total depravity of mankind, the, the sheer wickedness. He said things like, there's no one who seeks after God, and if that's not enough, he says, no, not one. 
Their throat is an open grave. Their feet rush to shed blood. There's no fear of God before their eyes. They suppress the truth about God and believe lies. They are haters of God. These are the things that Paul has said about us. It's that depravity that's in view now in verse 6 when Paul says, while we were still weak. He's not talking about physical weakness. He's talking about moral, spiritual powerlessness. The people who, who are in this pit that Paul has described for us in the early chapters of Romans, who are hopeless to get out and don't even have any desire to get out, who are just reveling in their sin and moral filth, are completely powerless, without any ability to improve their spiritual condition and without any desire to improve their spiritual condition. That's what he means when he says, well, we were still weak. And notice he says, we. We were weak. Who's the we there? Of course, it's all people, but Paul's talking to Christians here about what God has done for them. We are these people, all believers. This was our condition as well. Paul uses in these verses we're looking at this morning, verses 6 through 11, Four terms to describe what we were like prior to Christ saving us. And they sort of escalate. They go from bad to worse. We see, we see the first one, while we were weak, powerless, helpless, hopeless. And he says at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's the second one. From weak to ungodly. In verse 8 he calls us sinners. In verse 10 he calls us enemies. That is who we were. And unless a person comes to the place where they understand that, there is no salvation for them. God God only saves this category of people who knows they need saving and cries out to him for saving. I say this many times. He never just co-signs for people who are basically good. It means you radically don't understand who you are. And you for sure don't understand what it means for God to be holy. So while we were weak, totally incapable of changing our situation, totally unable to seek God, totally powerless to overcome our suppression of the truth of God, totally helpless to change our hatred of God, totally unable to get ourselves out from under the just and righteous wrath of God, totally helpless and not even desiring to bring ourselves to God, we were helpless in every possible way towards God totally incapable of earning anything, totally incapable of impressing him in any way, unable to gain or earn any acceptance with him whatsoever, and it is right there in that hopeless, rebellious, dead state that Christ died for us. Notice too, he says, Christ died at the right time. Oh, Jesus was no victim This wasn't an accident. It wasn't that Jesus had come to earth and, boy, the people really hated him. He he was just there to be a good example for everyone, but they hated him, so now might as well just let him kill him and we'll make that the way. No, that's not how it was in the eternal plan of God. He came at the right time. In the eternal purposes of God, Jesus came in the flesh at the exact right moment as designed by God. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, 
When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ came, lived, died at exactly the right moment, and Paul says that's proof that God loves his own. That's proof that God loves his people, that Jesus came at the exact right moment. Now, now Paul is going to contrast this love of God as he expands on this with the extent of man's love. Verse 7, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. This has been confusing for a lot of people. Is Paul contrasting a righteous person and a good person? What's the difference between those two things? That's not what Paul's doing. He's using a human analogy to illustrate the love of God. It is a very rare thing among men to see one person die for another person. Even if that person is a good and righteous person. Now when Paul says this, for a good man, for a righteous man, we need to remember this is the same Paul who has already told us that those are categories of people that don't exist. In the eyes of God, no one's righteous. In the eyes of God, no one is good. That's not what Paul means. He just means, on a human level, these are good, decent, honest people. Someone might rarely die for a person like that. There are examples of it, of course, that we can come up with, but they're very rare. It's an exceptional thing, an exceptional act of selflessness, deserving of honor when a soldier dies for the sake of other people, when the police officer loses their life in the line of duty, when the, when the parent lays down their life to protect their children or their family. We have some examples of this, but what God has done for us is far greater. The way he loved us the way he loves us does not exist among men. Look at what, what he says in verse 8. So Paul says this, this does happen rarely, but. So when we see that word but, we should go, okay, there's something important here that's coming. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's death for us is the ultimate expression of God's love for us. There was nothing about you. There was nothing about me that earned this, that deserved this. Nothing could make us deserving of such sacrificial love. There's, there's no nobility, no goodness, no moral worthiness that's just built into you. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. And th this word sinners, it means we were wholly given up to sin. We were bound in sin. We were enslaved by sin. We loved sin. We reveled in sin. We see this in chapter 1, verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So God has revealed himself clearly in his creation, Paul says. The glory of his sovereign majesty and we chose to exchange that truth for a lie. Any lie. Anything but the God of the Bible, the God who made all things. Why, why would we do that? 
Have you ever considered the weird things that people worship other than the God of the Bible and you wonder, why would anyone worship that? You know, he speaks of worshiping creation here, creeping things and, and man and birds. But think of people who have, still in the world today, where the rulers of certain nations are worshiped as gods. And you think, how can anybody possibly fall for that? It's because we're sinners. It's because we're bound in sin and we will choose anything over the true and living God. We, we are, Paul has said, his enemies. We hate him and so anything else will do. And it's while we were like that, we hadn't moved at all. We hadn't advanced the ball down the field. The, the needle hadn't moved even one tick. We were just right there, exactly like that, in our rebellion, in our hatred, in our unbelief. It was right there that Christ died for us. A most horrific, brutal, shameful death. He died, Paul says, for us, in our place, as our substitute. R.C. Sproul says this in his commentary on this passage, a sinner is a transgressor of the law. So we can say that while we were being actively disobedient to God, while we were in a state of rebellion against God, while we were hostile to God, while we were ignoring God, while we were refusing to submit to him, refusing to love him, refusing to worship him, at that time, while we were enemies with God, Christ died for us. What does that tell us about his motivation? Well, it tells us the motive wasn't found in me. And the motive wasn't found in you or any other person. There's nothing about us that would make us worthy of this. No, the motive for all of this was found where? In him. Just in him, it's because of his own love. It was because of his will that this was accomplished. Look then at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Here we see in this, in this beautiful statement, the past, the present, and the future all colliding together. Since we have already been justified by his blood, in past time, at the moment of our conversion, when we were declared righteous, credited with Christ's own righteousness, so now in the present, we stand in this righteousness. Verse 2 said we've been given access to our standing in grace, and now we have the future promise of full salvation that through Christ we will for sure be saved from the coming wrath. That's how comprehensive this is. It's a total package, past, present, and future. It's not as though Christ's salvation is only powerful enough for the past, but maybe not for the present, and the future's sketchy. No, salvation is a comprehensive thing. He says, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Much more. In other words, if we have been justified, if we have been declared righteous by God, if we have been saved, if we have been converted, whatever language you're going to use for that, if that has happened, then it is a rock-solid guarantee we will be saved from the wrath of God. It is a sure thing. Paul's making an argument he likes to make a lot. It's called an a fortiori argument, if you care about such things. I can tell you do from your faces. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. It's an argument from the more difficult to the far less difficult. 
If the first thing happened, the second thing is for sure going to happen. In fact, we just talked about this in the adult Sunday school this morning. Joseph said, if God can take you from one side of the Grand Canyon to the other side, he's not going to get hung up over a little pothole in the road and say, that's too big. That's Paul's argument here. If God would justify us when we were ungodly, when we were sinful, when we were enemies, an active rebellion against him, if God could take a person like that and declare them to be righteous, how much more will he keep us now that we are his friends? Now that we are his sons and his daughters who he loves, not his enemies. But this salvation from God's wrath, it comes one way. What does Paul say? Much more shall we be saved by him. By him, Christ alone. No other mediator, no other means, no other sacrifice, not our moral goodness, not our works of righteousness. We are saved from the wrath of God by him. And friends, we need this saving from the wrath of God. Remember what we have learned just so far as we've gone through Romans about this wrath of God. Chapter 2, verse 5, because of your hard and penitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 8 of chapter 2, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Verse 16, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men. By Christ Jesus. There is a day coming. A day full of God's wrath. A day full of God's fury. And here's what Paul says. On that day. On that day when Jesus judges every man. A day described in fiery, terrifying language. A day that should make us shudder with fear. Paul says for the Christian that that shouldn't be our response to that day at all. On that day, for those who have trusted in him, for those who have been justified by his blood, we shall surely be saved from the wrath of God through him. Isn't that good news? Isn't that the best news? If Christ died for us while we were his enemies, while we hated him, will he really let us fall under the wrath of God? Did Jesus not get what he paid for? Paul's point is, of course, he won't let us fall under the wrath of God. Of course not. How much more, since he has died for our salvation, will he keep all whom he has saved? We will be kept safe on that day through Jesus, having been justified by his blood, so there is no wrath left for you if you are in Christ, because Jesus paid it all. And if it's not true, we should quit singing that hymn. And that hymn's too good for us to quit singing. So we should keep singing it. Because it's true. He absorbed all the wrath that was due to us in his own body on the cross. What must that have been like? We can possibly comprehend what that must have been like. 
Far worse than the physical horrors and suffering of the cross, which, by the way, were so terrible that they had to invent a word to describe it, excruciating, from the cross. Far greater than that was the holy wrath of God that was unleashed upon him. What you and I should have experienced forever and ever and ever in hell was compressed down and poured out on him on the cross. And, and not just the wrath that was stored up for me, but for all of his people, for all who would call on his name for all time. The Old Testament saints, those who were living at the same time as him, all of us in the future, everyone until the return of the Lord Jesus, the eternal torment we deserved in hell, compressed and poured out on him on that cross. What must that have been like? R.C. Sproul again says it's likely he became oblivious to the physical pain of the crucifixion as he staggered under the weight of the heavy hand of the wrath of God that came down and crushed him. But friends, because Jesus paid it all, there's nothing left for us to pay. He was no victim. The cross was not a defeat. It wasn't a sad and pitiful situation. It was a victory, a triumphant one. Chapter 8, verse 1 of Romans. When we get there sometime in the future. We'll read these words in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He took it all upon himself. There's none left for us, Christian, God doesn't have one drop of wrath for you. He loves you. Just as he loves his own son. He's got nothing but grace for you. Nothing but love for you. Nothing but joy over you. Oh, isn't that comforting? Because I think most of us live our Christian lives thinking God is vaguely dis disappointed in us. Most of us maybe grew up hearing a so-called gospel that told us God was this mean grump with a big stick just waiting to whack us with it. No, if you're in Christ, that's what it means to be hidden in him. He's as happy with you as he is with his own son. So then salvation can be understood in these three verb ten tenses. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. It is a package deal. It is a sure thing. If you have been saved, then you will be saved. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I am sure of it. It is a sure thing. If he began the work in you, he will see it through to completion. Verse 10 expands on this even further now, back in Romans 5. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his death. Here's that a fortiori argument again. From the greater to the lesser. From the more difficult to the less difficult. He uses the same words. Much more. In other words, it's a guarantee. There's no doubt this is going to happen. If, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, then much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. It's a sure thing. 
But did you hear the conditional nature of this language? It starts with if. The first thing has to have happened before we can have surety that the second thing will happen. If we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's the condition. This promise is only for those who have been reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. No one else has this hope. No one else ought to have this hope. This word reconciled denotes a change in a relationship. To to exchange hostility in a relationship for friendship and love in a relationship. And, And to be loved by God in Christ Jesus is to be reconciled to God through Christ Jesus, through his sinless life, through his death. As we've seen this often in Romans, this is a passive verb here. If while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. This was something that was done for us. This is something that was done to us. This was not something that was done by us. We didn't do the reconciling of us to God. We had no ability to do that. We had no desire to do that. We didn't want to be reconciled again. But just the language in this passage alone that shows the the spiral downward of the wickedness of the human heart from weakness to ungodliness, sinners, enemies. We had no ability, no desire to be reconciled to God. But God took this relationship, this hostile relationship, and he exchanged it to be one of love and fellowship and friendship and sonship, and he did it through the death of his own son at great personal cost. He did this while we were enemies, while we hated him. Chapter 1, verse 30 says, while we invented evil against him. If we would have been capable of killing him, we would have killed him. That's the language that Paul uses in the early chapters of Romans. It's complete hostility. And again, Paul says, we, we were his enemies. Christian, do you know that? Do you know that you were his enemy or were you basically a good person whose sins weren't nearly as bad as a lot of other people's and you just needed to try harder to be faithful? You were his enemy. I was his enemy. Paul says we were his enemies. And in the middle of that hatred for him, his love for us was expressed in the death of his son to exchange our hostility with him, our war with him, for friendship with him. Can you even imagine that kind of love? To sacrifice his own son for the ones who hated him and wanted him dead, how difficult must that have been? Now, As Paul said, we we can come up with some examples of selflessness and and bravery as one person lays down their life for another person, but here's who they don't lay their life down for, someone they know is the worst person alive. They don't lay their lives down for them. Would you lay your life down for someone who is always slandering you, always seeking to destroy your reputation? Literally, they were plotting to murder you if they got the chance. Would you sign up for the job of dying for that person? Maybe right now in this safe room, because we're in church, you're like, I'm sure that I would. (laughs) I am sure that I would. (laughs) 
How about this? Would you sacrifice your child's life for that person? Would you sacrifice your, your child's life for, for the child molester who had his eye on them and wanted to murder them and tried to? See, that's what God's done for us. Vile. Enemies of God who hated him. Right in the thick of it. He died for us. He sent his son. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. If that unimaginable condition has been met, if God really did that for us and he did, then verse 10, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. If he would do that for us by the death of his son, how much more will he keep us by his life. If God did the hardest thing imaginable, Christ laying down his life for helpless, ungodly sinners, for his enemies like you and me, he will have no trouble whatsoever saving us from the wrath to come. That's Paul's argument. It's a sure thing. It is not difficult for Christ to keep those whom he has saved. In fact, it's guaranteed Because Jesus ever lives to intercede for his own. So, so, so here it is. As long as Jesus is alive, his people's salvation is secure. If he ever stops being alive, we got cause for concern. As long as he lives, he'll keep us. He'll keep these promises. He won't turn back on them. Chapter 8, verse 32 says, He who did not spare his only son but gave him up for his all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justified. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the one who has been justified by faith, there is no reason whatsoever to tremble in uncertainty about God's commitment to us, about our standing with him, about his love for us. We have these rock-solid promises from him. We shall be saved from the wrath of God. We shall be saved by his life. If he reconciled his enemy to himself, will he not also keep his friend, his son, his daughter to the end? What we're being given, and many of us in this room have been taught man's perspective on how this must all work. Based on our own human reason and watching people's lives play out, we've come to some conclusions about how things must operate. What Paul's giving us here is God's perspective about how this all works. And from God's perspective, Christian, those who are in Christ, those who have, have come to him in repentance and faith, you have no reason to fear. No reason to be uncertain about the coming day of wrath. You are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you are fully secure in him. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
So how long does Jesus keep his people secure? If he saves a person, if he justifies a person, if they are in him, how long does he keep them secure? The answer from Scripture is forever. Forever. Just so we're clear, I'm sure I've been clear, I want to be more clear. Here's what this means. If these verses are true, no Christian has ever, will ever, or could ever lose the salvation that Christ has purchased and secured by his life, death, and resurrection. Zero genuine Christians have ever lost that. Jesus, to put it a better way, in a more biblical way, has never, ever, ever lost a Christian. Now you might have an inner lawyer. It's not what I grew up believing. It's not what I've heard. Maybe you heard the horror stories I heard in college when one professor said, if you believe that, you think somebody can walk an aisle, pray a prayer, and go home and do heroin and murder their family, and they're still going to go to heaven. Nope, I don't believe that. Notice there's not a lot of aisle walking and repeat after me prayers going on in the last four years, by the way. So you can know for sure I don't believe that. But I do believe every one of these promises. So here's the thing. If you want to argue that you can lose your salvation, I don't know why anyone would want to argue that, by the way. But if you want to, there's a four-step process by which you can do it. If we're going to take these promises at their face value, there is a four-step process by which you can do it. Step number one, ascend into heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning in glory, putting all his enemies under his feet. Step number two, step in between the Father and Son and seize hold of the Son. Step number three, overpower him, drag him down to earth, and kill him and make sure he stays dead. Step number four, be your own God. <laughs> Rule over this Christ whom you have killed. If you do that, you can lose your salvation. If you can't do that, and obviously no one can do that, then you're standing before God is secure because Christ lives. He ever lives to make intercession for you. Now, this isn't, this isn't us saying, oh, good, we can do whatever we want because we pray to prayer. I don't believe that at all. Those whom he saves, how many times have we seen this in, in, in Romans? The righteousness that he gives to us is a comprehensive righteousness that transforms a person such that we are called by this same Paul to examine our lives and see if we're in the faith and our lives will testify truthfully about us. If we walk in unrepentance, we should have no confidence that the first step of this process happened. If you are living a life of willful rebellion and sin against God, maybe you're good in, in all kinds of areas of your life, but you got this one thing and you're holding on to it and they're like, this is my sin. I'm sure God will forgive me. It's his job to forgive me. Let me just tell you, you may never have been justified by Christ. You might not be in him because that's not how people who are in him talk and live and think. But if you are in him, your standing is as secure as his is before the Father. And as long as he lives, you shall live. Friends, this is the most hope you're going to find anywhere. That's why Paul says this, verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What's the result of these promises? What's the result of this truth? What's the result of these blessings that come 
to the one who has been justified by faith. It's worship. It's rejoicing. It's boasting in God. It's not, it's not presumption that thinks somehow we're awesome and better than everyone else. No, it is, it's to stand in awe of God, to rejoice in him in all things. We have received reconciliation. It is already ours. And having been reconciled, we have everything else. We have everything. And so we worshipfully express overwhelming joy in the God who loved us who saved us, who is keeping us. That's what this knowledge does. That's what this salvation produces in Christians. Oh, friends, that these truths would wash over our hearts. If you're sitting here arguing in your mind with me and you've already developed what you're sure is your winning argument, God bless you, but my prayer for you is that these truths would just wash over your hearts and you would rejoice in hope. Rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That, 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 that this rejoicing is a foretaste of heaven. A billion years from now, we'll never get tired of being amazed at this. We'll never get to the end of, of, of understanding the depths of God's love for us, his power to save in Christ. Oh, that these truths right now would ignite our soul and unleash a holy passion for God that we would glory in Him. This is His love for His people. Saving love. Keeping love. Omnipotent love. Everything Paul has said in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, is meant to give you assurance that if you are in Christ, God is for you and he will always be for you. Meditate on this love. Build your life on this love. Live your life in the light of this love. And as you do, God's love will have its sure effect, as Paul has told us. As it is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, you will love God in return. In response to this love, you will worship God. You will glory in him. You will rejoice in him. And you will have assurance in him. Friends, it's there for you. He has provided more than we could ever ask or imagine. Let's stand up together. Lord God, we stand in awe of you, of your great salvation. And as, as Paul has shown us in the early chapters of Romans just how wicked all of humanity is, ourselves included, Lord, now as we come to this, these glorious gospel truths, we are amazed at you, at your love for us, at your power to save. I pray, Lord, that these truths would go down deep into our souls, producing in us rejoicing, producing in us hope, producing in us courage, producing in us steadfastness, producing in us an urgency to proclaim this saving gospel to a dying world. Lord, thank you for your grace. That is so astounding that you have showered on us in Christ. Thank you for this reconciliation for making us ambassadors of that reconciliation. I pray to that end that you would make us faithful for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.